This episode of Where To Begin With will feature heavy spoilers of the movie Brick from 2005. If you want to take part in this series by submitting a review for this movie and then you've never seen it before, then hit stop right now. Go away, check out the movie, then come back with your review and everything will be fine and dandy. However, if you have seen the movie before or you generally don't care about spoilers, then keep listening on. Don't say you weren't warned. Brendan? Emily? I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good? No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. So you didn't know this boy? No sir, never seen him. And he just hit you. But he asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. You're coming into a certain situation. It's twisted. I'm looking for Emily. He left her. Yeah, I did. You better be sure you want to know what you want to know. Complicated. Everyone's got their thing. When the upper crust does shady deeds, they've got symbols so they can tell each other that we're getting around. Coffee and pie. Coffee and pie? Oh, my. Keep up with me now. You got a cigarette? I don't smoke. I've seen you smoke. I don't smoke cigarettes. I thought we had orange juice. I'm sorry. Water's fine, ma'am. Thanks. Oh, wait a minute. We have apple juice. It's country style. If I get to the bottom, whatever this is... What do you want? Just to see you sweat. And it gets too hot. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. I see that you're trying to help her. And I don't know anybody who would do that for me. You are dangerous. I set out to know, put her on the spot. And put her in front of the gun. There's not much chance of coming out clean. And welcome back to where to begin with. This is season three, episode number three. I'm your host, Duncan McLeish. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Now, I've re-recorded this introduction about seven times. That is the legacy of delays and just in general life, which will find a way, like Jeff Goldblum said, all the way back in Jurassic Park. Now, it's not because I didn't want to drop this episode reviewing Brick, or it's not because I haven't watched it at least three times in the last month and a half. I'll put my cards on the table. Kinda adore this movie. But it's because with a lot of this series, it requires a bit of time put to the side to concentrate on not only the mystery above, but at times the subtleties and subtext of the characters' interactions, behaviours, and at times what the director's actually trying to get at. At times, film noir and neo-noir could be seen as a very superficial genre 
delivering a kind of who's done it, a kind of tension, kind of power play at times, um, and maybe not a lot else. And for the most part, those can be accurate summations of what the genre does do. And there is more than a handful of examples that purely work on the visuals and the gimmicks and the tropes, but don't necessarily deliver the depth. Brick is one such movie that I like to think kind of gets into the nuts and bolts, gets into the weeds, and for better or worse, depending on your outlook on kind of teenage relationships at school and the cliques that form within, this movie essentially takes a kind of adult power dynamic and finds likeness to it in the institutions that we grow up throughout. And that in itself makes it a hugely fascinating movie. If it wasn't also the directing debut of Ryan Johnson, who's went on to become pretty much a power player in Hollywood, or it didn't star a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he himself has become a very popular actor. I don't know with a different director, maybe even a different cast, if this movie would have made much of an impact or a blip at all out with a weird sideshow oddity. And at the same time, Brick from the Johnson back catalogue is probably his least known movie. He comes to prominence with his follow-up movie, which does contain a huge amount of neo-noir tropes in Looper, which also incorporates it with a little shade of that time travel that we all love that infuriates us all when we try and think about it. So, it's not that I was reticent to sit down and cover Brick. It's not that I didn't want to do it either. It's just I was having so much fun watching it that the recording that comes after this re-recorded intro of seven takes isn't necessarily breaking the mould, it's not treading new ground, it's not giving you something that you don't know. But, with the time that I've had afforded to me, with the reviews on this episode, from both David Garrett Jr. and Tim Walker, who have been consistent, I do wish more of you would take part, but they are consistently submitting in their reviews, the bit that gets me exciting is neither one of those gentlemen have ever seen this movie before. Last year, when I was running the cast club for podcasts under the stairs, every Thursday night we'd sit and watch a movie as a community. This was a movie that I picked. And no one in that group that watched it had seen the movie before. And it kind of got me wondering if... A movie that I find a kind of bona fide rarity and classic is a classic because I've made it a classic or is it a classic by the virtue of the popularity the movie has itself and what I've realised is Brick actually is maybe an important movie to me and maybe not to much else. So we'll find out specifically next month and with this lengthy introduction just allow me to apologise again for running a bit late on this one. We will pick up with uh, Great Pace 
through the back seven episodes of this, this one being the seventh to the end, and bring you successive episodes without any more breaks every month. Now, the plan moving forward for the Teapots Collective, and I'm going to reiterate this on each of the shows released under the banner, the umbrella, the tent, if you will, that is the Teapots Collective, is that you will be getting one episode of one of the shows every single week, and I'm going to try and schedule them in nice and tight. So, the first week of every month, you'll be getting an Opera Omnia. The second week of every month, you'll be getting a Where To Begin With. The third week of every month, you will be getting a little bit of Chronicle, and then the fourth week of every month, or the final week of every month, depending on how long the month is, you'll be getting a Doing the Nasty, and then it shall loop and loop and loop again. For the months that have five weeks in them, then there will be a week off in order to allow us to continue to put out in such fashion towards the end of 2022. With all that out the way, welcome to this episode covering Brick. And welcome back to Where to Begin With. So we are discussing Brick. Very excited about this one. This is a movie that I still think is woefully underseen. Rarely talked about by a director who has went on and done Star Wars movies and Knives Out, which was huge, is getting that Netflix sequel, which everyone, trust me, everyone is excited about, but uh, maybe a lesser known title, his debut, is the one that I think begins to deliver a bit of a Rosetta Stone as to Rain Johnson's, I wouldn't say style, because this one is cheaply made, but certainly his interests like on this one, there's a healthy, healthy, healthy dose of noir. And then his follow-up movie, Looper, has a healthy, healthy dose of noir. Uh, this one, for all intents and purposes, is more akin to a Chinatown than it would be Looper, which is more akin to a Blade Runner. So it's like different angles of the film noir, neo-noir sphere, if we can call it such a thing. So this movie here is essentially a kind of murder mystery and a detective story, but instead of being set in the rugged main streets of Los Angeles, um, this one is set in a high school. And as a result, it is heavily playful by using the essentially the high school paradigms, the hierarchy, so to speak, to be set up in such a way to liken them to police institutions or mob life in a really, really interesting way. In fact, conversations themselves are almost done not exclusively in kind of street slang, but they, they lean towards that. Um, what you have here in this movie is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays a character called Brendan. Uh, Brendan used to be in a relationship with, uh, you know, his, his kind of long-time squeeze before things went south, a girl called Emily. Um, he gets a phone call from her where she's basically begging for help. 
and uh, something to do with the bad brick, something to do with something called Tug, and a character called The Pin. Um, and later on her body will be found, and she's dead. Kind of very Twin Peaks, actually. Um, and Brendan decides that he is going to bust some heads, break down school institutions, and uh, get to the bottom of what will lead to be a kind of covert drug deal, um, a brick of heroin, a drug lord from the underground who still lives with his mum called The Pin, and his muscle enforcement, a guy called Tug. Um, in the midst of all that, you're going to get some excellent cinematography by Steve Yedlin. You're going to get amazing music by Johnson's brother Nathan. Um, you're going to get a kind of amazing story as written by Rain Johnson. But you're also going to get a really kind of lo-fi, stripped-back indie aesthetic to something that I think personally benefits from that. Um, this movie was allegedly budgeted at under half a million dollars, which even now kind of blows my mind looking at it. Not only because of the cast themselves, but actually just the way it's kind of delivered. Um, it's got an ambitious runtime, like a lot of noir movies do. It sits at just under the two hour mark. It's about an hour and ten minutes in length. Uh, sorry, an hour and fifty minutes in length, all in. And yeah, it's it's a movie that kind of leans on its influences quite heavily, um, without necessarily doing much in the way of. Um, Reinventing the wheel. This is not a reinventing the wheel sort of movie. This is a movie that at its best, like, understands the makeup and the storytelling tropes and building blocks of a noir story and more pays homage to it than it out and right kind of rips it off. It's a movie that also surprisingly works better than it should. Um... I'll be interested to see what Tim Walker makes of this one because he's a guy who generally is nauseated by anything set in a school with teenagers. Um, this one kind of works because of that. Anyone that's went to any high school or worked their way through it, uh, and let's be honest, we've all been there at some point or another. And I went to a British school, I went to a Scottish high school, very different from an American one, but I still identify those cliques, those groups, and that to me is kind of exciting. Um, Nathan Johnson, who is uh, Rain Johnson's cousin, not his brother, I think I said brother earlier on, his cousin, worked on the score, kind of approaching things from a kind of noir textural point of view as opposed to writing a score. You know, he kind of went with a feel. Kind of went with some instruments that are definitely known and some sounds, which once again adds to the feel. And I think that makes a huge difference to the overall 
view. There's also a thing as well where, and I mentioned Twin Peaks earlier on, but there's a kind of lynching vibe going on here as well. Um, I think some people forget that at its core, Twin Peaks was certainly the original series of Twin Peaks works as a kind of surreal sitcom noir. At its core, it was always about who killed Laura Palmer, and this movie, for the most part, is about who killed Emily. And we follow our detective around. Um, there's a little shade, a little shade of the coop um, when you're looking at Brendan, for sure. But, it, you know, it's, it, it, it takes the best parts of film noir, modernises them, whilst at the same time stays true to the, the era of which they come from. Which is such a fine balancing act that it'll either really work for you, as this movie works for me, or it will not work for you and it will fall apart and become flimsy like a paper mache brick which has been left out in the rain. Couldn't think of anything better to come up with and that's the best way I'd and I could use the word brick again. I think even towards the end this movie has a surprisingly sad ending but all the war should and even when things feel wrapped up no one's better for it. And I think that's true to life. It's one of the reasons I love the genre so much. Um, life and who we are is a combination of essentially the good that we go through, but more importantly, the bad. The bad times are really what shape us. If someone only ever experiences joy and happiness, I don't know how, how adjusted a person becomes with that. It's the negative and sad things in our life that force us to look for the good in other people and other situations. And noir is a genre that's built to do that. Like, very rarely does a character come out a noir movie happy, well-adjusted, and ready to move on with their life. More often than not, they're left with scars and baggage that will, will be with them till the end of time. I think Brick does a good job in that as well, even though... Like I said before, ultimately what we're playing with here is is adult paradigms in a high school setting. High schools are designed to make us, whether well done or not well done, um, transition from being children to being adults. And as a result, that weirdly is a... You would think it would be more of a goldmine for movies like this. And we don't get them as serious as this much at all in ways which aren't movies like Election or Donnie Darko. Like these movies here where you're like specifically imposing the adult paradigm I think are, are, are just a lot more are just a lot more interesting. So I'm curious to see where you guys land on this. Brick is a movie that's near and dear to me. I think the first time I saw it, which would be like twice 2006, maybe 2007 I was sitting there thinking we are we are in the presence of a guy that's going to go off and do amazing things, which he has done. I don't think I've seen a Rain Johnson movie that I actually dislike, and I know a lot of people don't like that Star Wars movie. I would argue it's probably the best out of the three after movies that came out. Um, and Knives Out and Looper are both great fucking watches. He's a guy who continues to make really, really, really interesting cinema, uh, whilst uh, like instantly putting over his personality 
and at the same time delivering odes to cinema past, present and towards the future as well. He does have a new movie coming out this year. It is Knives Out 2. It will be on Netflix. Has an insane cast. I'm looking forward to checking it out then. I'm waiting with bait breath to see how much of that noir influence makes its way across. So yeah, there you go. I'll be letting you know when to submit that review in for Brick. Uh, at the end of this episode but we got some business to do for this one for sure we've two reviews that have come in surprise surprise from tim walker and david garrett jr on i was gonna say last month's two months ago's movie strangers on a train let's start with tim walker who says dear duncan and teapots collective folk the third pick for where to begin with is one i'm pretty familiar with though i admit I never thought of it as a film noir before you selected it, Duncan. I guess it is, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I suppose I just put Hitchcock in his own category because, well, he's Hitch, right? He's so awesome, he's his own film genre. I've seen Strangers on a Train two or three times before, and there's no point in hiding it. I really dig this one. It's not Hitchcock's best film by any stretch, and maybe not everybody's favourite, but it's really damn good. The acting is top-notch all round. I love Farley Granger, although it might be have um, it might have been interesting to see some of Hitchcock's other leading men in the role. Robert Walker, no relation, is actually my father's name though. Uh, was an amazing villain, sympathetic in a lot of ways, pretty much full-on and likable and charming but a psychopath nonetheless and I would add in a lot of respects here Tim a lot of psychopaths are uh, charming and likeable uh, it's only when you spend too much time with them that you realise there's something not quite right under the hood anyway back to your review I might say I'd been interested to see Hitchcock's actors from other films in the role because I did hear an old time radio adaptation of Strangers on a Train and that was outstanding I'm pretty sure it was a Lux Radio Theatre episode and it had Ray Milland, lead actor of Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, in the Farley Granger role and a great actor named Frank Lovejoy in the Robert Walker role. Lovejoy in particular was just as good if not better than Walker. By the way, the only horror film I know Lovejoy was in was the original House of Wax with Vincent Price where he played a police officer. I highly recommend if you've got an hour or so. It's really well done. Anyway, the acting was great. Were there ever poor acting performances in Hitchcock films? The man knew how to cast his movies and get great performances. It's very well shot and includes what I think is one of the best murder scenes in cinema history. The murder of Granger's wife as she is strangled. The whole thing is shot through her glasses and I was floored. It was immensely beautiful, though immensely and intensely violent for the time. This plot is both simple and complex, as it's the villain. He's pretty easy to understand, but complex as well. He came up with a very clever plan, albeit one that had a lot of potential ways to go wrong. As for the negatives, I really can't think of any. Maybe I wouldn't say it's a perfect film, but it's really well done. I'm giving it 5 out of 5 stars and obviously strong recommend to anybody. So the next movie is Brick and I've never seen it so I have no idea whether I'll get you a positive review or not. Hopefully it's interesting uh, regardless. 
negative reviews as long as they are fair-minded can be an interesting reader listen and who knows maybe i'll dig it more than you duncan we'll see until then i say to my fellow teapots collective people take care and stay safe and don't talk to people on the way home unless it's a very friendly drunken professor tim thank you very much for that review tim always great to hear from you genuinely excited to hear what you think of brick i think it is either going to connect with you in ways which are going to make me very very happy to read out or it's not and i just like you said i think you will come up with points that will make me look at the movie in an interesting way and it'll be fun to read regardless the second and final review of this episode comes in from david garrett jr who says hello teapots collective listeners david garrett jr once again back for where to begin with film noir and neo-noir films and this time around we are covering a classic from alfred hitchcock as this is one that I believe I saw this originally when I was going through the filmography for him. After my original viewing, I found this one interesting, but not my favorite. Now, every October, the Gateway Film Center will show some of Hitchcock films. And so I know I went over there one point to see this movie. And I think I've given this one a handful of viewings, you know, just throughout the years and everything like that. So where I really kind of want to start here would be the implications of the time that this was made. The first thing that kind of struck me, especially this time around, was the forensic evidence not being what it is today. I did find a huge plot hole that Bruno was going to leave the lighter at the scene of the crime after he killed Miriam for Guy. And I mean, this is a great way to blackmail him because he threw out this idea to him and there are little things that he can do to try to point the police to Guy. But the problem is that Guy has a pretty airtight alibi. But, I mean, I guess the cops do kind of poke holes in that. And, I mean, he does have a motive, which is kind of the big thing that Bruno has going for him. So, as I was saying, there isn't a whole lot of evidence to point to Guy outside of him wanting a divorce. And, for me, I just kind of feel like a lot of this is Guy just kind of panicking. The police already being on to him kind of points everything in that direction. So, what I will say is that this does have good pacing. There's a feeling of dread that comes from how creepy Bruno is. Once he throws the idea out there, we all just kind of laugh it out, including Guy. When we see what he does, that starts to build the tension. There's an iconic scene as well at the tennis practice where everyone is watching the ball while Guy is being intently watched by Bruno. It is part funny, but it's also creepy. I thought the ending sequence was also pretty good. It is convenient how things play out, but I've seen much worse. Now going along with that, we get some good acting. I wasn't the biggest fan of Granger. He comes off as moody, and I don't necessarily connect with him outside of I didn't want him to be framed for a crime he didn't commit. I just don't feel like he's overly likable. Now, his girlfriend, of portrayed by Romaine, who is Ann Morton, I thought she was pretty good. What I like about her is that there is some realism here is that she remembers that guy said over the phone that he wanted to strangle his wife, and she's kind of leery about him until she sees the evidence. Someone who was also great was Walker. I thought as a psychopath, he was close to perfect. His stare is eerie, and seeing how unhinged he is as well. And there's just a kind of disconnect there where he doesn't necessarily understand consequences of things. And he, growing up rich and everything, I feel like he can do whatever he wants to. And seeing how far he goes builds tension. I love how he stares at Anne's younger sister of Barbara, who is portrayed by Hitchcock's daughter of Patricia. And to see him lose control while he's staring at her at that party was creepy as well. The reason this happens was interesting. It also adds a fascinating dimension here. 
in that Barbara is into true crime, so she's constantly bringing up examples of things uh, that she's read. I thought that the rest of the cast was solid, including Patricia, rounding out this one for what we needed. Now, there's not a whole lot in the way of effects for this one, but for the most part, Hitchcock didn't necessarily need to use a lot of them, as this is more story-based. We get some good cinematography. I come to expect that from his movies, but I wanted to give it credit here. The composition of focus is what really kind of works here, and there's a lot of depth to them. He also selected some interesting shots for different things as well. I did notice on my 4K television the use of green screen for things. It doesn't hurt the movie for me, but I just kind of want to bring that up here as a nitpick. So with that said, this is an interesting film noir. We are dealing with a man who murdered someone and then is pushing someone else to commit a crime for them. Bruno is insane, and the lengths that he'll go to create has a growing sense of dread. To go with that, he is driving Guy into madness. I thought the story was interesting despite some minor plot holes. I thought the acting was good, as was the look of the film. There weren't a lot in the way of effects, and the score doesn't necessarily stand out, but I won't hold it against it either. I don't think this is his best, but it's still an above-average film. So my rating here for Strangers on a Train is going to be a 4 out of 5 on the T-Put scale. And Duncan, the next one that you selected is one that I had never seen or even heard of, so I'm pretty excited there, and I believe even my wife Jamie is going to be watching this one with me, as she is a fan of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's. So, can't wait to hear the episode, and to see what everybody else thinks about Strangers on a Train. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on Brick, and thank you once again so much for doing these. This is David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. And thanks very much to David Garrett Jr. for his review. So, next month we will be getting your reviews of the movie Brick. That episode will drop on Sunday the 12th of June, which means you need to get your reviews into me no later than Wednesday the 8th. So that's the Wednesday the 8th of June. Episode drops Sunday the 12th of June, and that is covering Brick, the movie that I was speaking about earlier on in this episode. And I know what you're thinking, what does that mean for you Duncan what we're doing next where are we going well I told you the next one would be bonafide classic and I wasn't lying uh, let's talk about a young 27 year old whippersnapper who would go on and essentially become one of the most important filmmakers of all time I am of course talking about Stanley Kubrick this is his feature movie debut and this is The Killing from 19. 56. That is the movie we will be discussing on the next episode and the one that you guys will be reviewing for the episode after. The synopsis is listed on IMDb as Crook Johnny Clay assembles a five-man team to plan and execute a daring racetrack robbery. It is widely regarded as um, one of the top 10 best film noirs of all time. And whilst it doesn't necessarily play into every single trope, and you may have watched this one and never thought to yourself, film noir, um, it certainly in my book is, and it's one that I think rounds out your understanding and appreciation for the subgenre itself. So, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be sitting there and doing... Kubrick's The Killing from 1956 and like I said before Wednesday the 8th of June for your reviews of Brick and that episode will drop on Sunday the 12th of June.
Thank you very much for checking out this episode of Where to Begin With. This entire season is doing film noir and neo-noir and I hope you're enjoying the journey with me. Make sure you check out the other shows on the Tea Putts Collective, whether it's Opera Omnia, which will return for a very short season, looking at the movies of Alex Garland next month. So we will have a few episodes there. He's got a brand new movie about to drop called Men, which is folk horror and that makes me very happy because folk horror in general is maybe my favourite subgenre and, and horror. I think between that and Giallo, it's, it's about neck and neck. So very much looking forward to getting into his three movies on that run. You can also check out a little bit of Chronicle, which is working its way through European horror movies through season four with guests. So guests are picking movies, we're sitting down and discussing them. Boy, do I have a doozy coming up for you this month uh, when I sit down with my buddy Derek Bourgeois and get deep into a film that I have not seen in a long, long time. And then also you get a little bit of doing the nasty. We are looking at the tier three video nasty list and are about two thirds of the way through that. Myself and my long suffering co-host for season number two, Mr. Mark Ball, delivering the goods at the end of every month. So until I speak to you the next time and we do more of this film noir and neo-noir jaunt, take care of yourself. This is Duncan McLeish. Until the next time.